here today to talk about an article you wrote quite a while ago now. This was part of a program where we looked back at a number of pieces from varying perspectives in the art world, talking about the abundance of morality in the period that we are, I think, now just exiting. And your article was among the more celebrated, more interesting, and useful provocations that we encountered in that exercise. So, yeah, it's good to see you. How are things over on the East Coast? Yeah, good Good to see you too. It looks beautiful and sunny where you are. Today is Wednesday. I just got back last Thursday. I've just been home in England for three weeks, which is the first time I'd been home for nearly a few years. And now it's, it's good to be in New York. Have a new year. We've been in lockdown for such a long period of time that this is now a chapter in everyone's career and life, personal, professional, everything. Yeah, yeah. And there's um, a tide shift that seems to be creeping up rather rapidly. What, what do you mean by a tide shift? Um, well, I think there's a few forces that are conjoining, right? So I guess one of the reasons why I wanted to revisit this material talking about moralism in the art world is because in the era of Biden, politics has rapidly, rapidly receded from everyone's day-to-day thoughts or, or really moment-to-moment thoughts. There seems to be a few conjoining forces where there's a political shift. There's also a trend cycle that starts to become exhausted. There's also a pandemic that restructures the way people interact. And um, maybe one of the positive things that happens is when everyone becomes a content producer, the people who have to go on a live stream and talk for an hour and don't have anything interesting to say, they do get pushed to the margins a little bit more than in the art world context, where you can have completely impenetrable press releases and really say nothing uh, meaningful or sensical. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to try to be interesting. It's good to to be, um, yeah, it's good to be on the spot to kind of improvise as it were. One thing I noticed over Christmas, you mentioned like things becoming lower stakes. I felt like I was beginning to see a rehabilitation of Trump from devilish figure into like harmless figure of fun in the way that happened with George W. Bush. Interesting. That, that could all be undone very quickly, of course, if he runs again or anything like that. But particularly around Christmas and in relation to that video where the, he's talking to the seven-year-old kid and saying, you know, do you believe in Santa Claus? Are you sure? I saw so many people posting about how funny that was. Wow. And not, not the same kind of people, the people that have been saying he's funny all along. It really um, surprised me. Having said that, I did feel even through this period, which I also think is come to an end, but say the past five years, I did feel even at the time that we're going to look back on that period very differently. I think we'll probably look back on these years a lot more fondly than they were portrayed at the time as some terrible apocalyptic moment. And even revisiting this essay, which, which I published in 2019, when I wrote it, I felt like it was risky in a way. Like I was um, putting my neck out a bit by publishing some of this stuff. I was worried a little, second guessing myself a little and revisiting it now just less than three years later, it reads as so anodyne. It It doesn't feel like a controversial or outspoken or even particularly provocative text at all. So it's just strange how how much the context changed. 
It is. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, the context shift is almost unimaginable from that period. Uh, this was only available in print. This was not published online. And the the professional risk associated with discussing these topics were enormous. And now it's, what, uh, two years later, something like that. And this feels like, oh, this is consensus now. I think it would have been January of 2019, something like that. At Higher Pictures, we did a panel discussion that was you and me and Arya Dean and Nora Khan, and we were talking about some related issues, and I think everyone mutually agreed that we don't want to release the audio for this. We just want to have this be an in-person conversation because the fear of being clipped out of context or something like that and the, the professional risk of saying that, you know, perhaps some of this extremely heightened moralism that's circulating in the art world is disingenuous in its application. Perhaps it is not doing what it purports to do. Those were, uh, those were radical and dangerous ideas that are now common sense. So I do like this. I do like your idea that perhaps we'll look back on this period and it'll be like a, a very funny set of taboos that are quickly overturned and we look back at it fondly instead of being terrified of expressing an opinion. Yeah, I think we will. I think we will. Would you give us, for those who have not read the article, just a brief summary to give everyone an orientation? The article was written in 2019. It's for Spike magazine, where I'm a New York editor. And our, our editors decided to do a morality issue. So this was to be the central essay of the morality issue. And it was supposed to be provocative to an extent. I was to write a defense of immorality in art, or at least a criticism of the excessive morality that was really prevalent then, and is still going on now, but in a far more diluted and probably disingenuous way. But at that moment, there was a lot of morality in art, and people took it incredibly seriously. People were very passionate about it. It wasn't just a settling of scores or anything like that. There was a real kind of moral crisis going on throughout society. But, but art was, was, was ahead of the curve in many ways. Like You could see things happening that later became much bigger national and international phenomena. This essay, a short summary, I'll just go from the stand first. It says... Artists once promised to take us to a place that was wild and free. Now they promise to uphold common moral decency and keep things as boring as possible. But doesn't a sick society call for a sick art? And so I write in praise of distastefulness and sensation. And my, my argument, I'm not saying, I wasn't saying, and I'm not saying now, that there should be no moral art or that art has no place being moral. But it's really just a plea for diversity in the sense of like varied approaches, varied perspectives. So I think we should have space for art that's moral, but I think we should also have space for art that is immoral, which is to say it could be offensive. Uh, it could even be hurtful or upsetting to some people. It could definitely play with taboos. And aside from that, we should also have space for art that is, does not take moral concerns into consideration at all. So I think we should have moral art, immoral art, amoral art. Yeah. But that we shouldn't retreat 
into this very frightened way of being. You should be able to speak freely, take risks in the art world, and maybe maybe you'll overstep the mark, but you should you should be able to like make mistakes. You should be, and if you make a mistake, you should be able to be forgiven. There should be a road to reconciliation. And that is one of the, I think, great ironies of our society now is this idea that everyone can be educated and brought to the light, uh, so to speak. There's a very puritanical undertone to this thing. But then at the same time, this moral fanaticism seems uh, blacklist people permanently and, and uh, the professional consequences are, are enormous. Uh, one of the things that's been really interesting to me in the context of moralism in the art world is that we live in a very unequal society and art in uh, late capitalism, what have you, is going to require some form of patronage. And that patronage in those last few years that group of donors whose names you would see on the walls of the museum were not very happy with the Trump administration. This was embarrassing on a international scale. They didn't have the suave and elegance of an Obama as their uh, national avatar or what have you. During this period, work that was, say, transgressive or engaged with taboos or um, something that was not useful to the reputation laundering of the donor class was very much pushed to the side. So I think there were really clear reputational incentives for the donor class to boost art, which rhetorically celebrated uh, the cause of justice, but was not making a material commitment to that work. And this created such a, a dangerous tightrope of conversation that people retreated from publishing work in public. They put words in print, they did podcasts behind paywalls, and they did panel discussions in private and off the record. So now we're emerging from that period. Do you feel like there's a difference in the American system of art patronage that cause some of these conditions to unfold that is maybe different from Europe? Does it have a connection to the donor structure for American art? Well, American art is more reliant on donors and has a bigger donor structure. I grew up in England and England has a lot of, a lot more public funding for the arts. Uh, that has been changed now. You know, that funding has been reduced, say, since since how high it was when I was growing up. But but I believe there's still a lot more public funding for the art, the arts in England than there is uh, here in the states. I'm sure that's the case in places like Germany. I think has very robust public funding for the arts. So then the question of um, the reputation laundering of the donor class, that's that's not something that I've that I've thought about much or know about much. I, I'd be interested to hear you speak about that more. When you started talking about donors there, I thought you were going to go down the roots of this sort of purging of donors, like the Sacklers, but also people mm. connected to BlackRock, to Epstein, Warren Canders and the Tear Gas Biennial. That, that's where I thought you were you were going, because my instinctual take would not be that this this movement towards morality is coming from the people funding institutions. I do think institutions have, have taken on a different role. This is something other people have told me that the actual role of institutions has, has changed like in a fundamental sense. And you could also say that there are efforts to change, to change the idea of 
what is art for? What is art supposed to be about? I do think institutions have changed a lot. I think they've become much more, a lot of them have become much more ideologically uh, motivated and also ideologically coherent within themselves and amongst themselves. I was reading a um, end of year email from The Kitchen. It's a space here in New York. And it was so like, it, this just came like a few weeks ago. It was just so forthright, you know? It was so kind of ideologically motivated, ide- ideologically pure in a sense, had such a clear vision. It was, it, was, uh, it was surprising to me. But But what makes you think that comes from the donors? There's a rift between American elites Um, Some of them were very unhappy about the Trump administration, and they wanted to separate themselves from the other half of the American elites that were, you know, along lines of red and blue, mostly. What that did was it punished different narratives. It created a different system of priorities, that things that would counter-signal the values of the Trump administration to the benefit of the Blue Party donors in the art world this was the narratives and work that they were most interested to celebrate and put forward. The question of ideology in art had receded for a very long time, and obviously there's a rupture that happens a few years ago, and now things are just, I think, very clearly ideological, and you see things like Zwerner is hosting a fundraiser for just the Democrats in general. It doesn't matter who the nominee is. Uh, There are, I think, really clear commitments. I hear galleries talking about arranging busing and transportation to voting. Um, I believe Paul Chan has a show up now at at Green Naftali where you can register to vote. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So before there was maybe, let's say, Uh, give the art world the benefit of of the doubt. Let's say that their politics are much more radical and there would be no commitment to a political party. And and, and now there's a really direct uh, commitment that is, I think, mostly unquestionable. So the wager or the situation that I I continue to find myself in is that the, the new recruits and the participants in the art world definitely seem to not be benefiting from a lot of the party commitments that the elites of the art world have. And you end up with institutions that do not represent the interests of a public. Very soon that verges into an idea that institutions should be anti-populist, to be essentially a, a hedge on behalf of elites against populist demagogues. I threw a lot at you there, but I want to agree that the role no, of institutions good. is There's is a lot shifting. of good stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> There's, well, I, I thought about this a lot, you know, and I can't not think about it because we just made the channel announcement, but part of my project has been you know, I've been publishing this work and and through Do Not Research, publishing other people's work on this topic. Like there is a multitude of high quality, interesting work from young creatives that has not found a home in institutional structures. And it would seem to me that the success of those projects is evidence of the void left by the institutions. So makes one curious why such a tremendous allocation of resources was given to other projects during that time. And it seems to be ideological, but also, you know, to the reputational benefit of, of many of the donors. I definitely think there is a anti-pop, anti-populist turn in art. And I mean anti-populist in a very broad sense there. I don't just mean like a turn against populist nationalist parties, because I don't think there was ever any support for that in the art world, but but against kind of anything that is associated with like populist sensibility or like what we might call like low mass culture, 
particularly with like recent online trends or internet culture, something that I think people like you, like your colleagues in channel are associated with, there definitely seems to be like a big doubling down on the authentic object, on sculptures and paintings and traditional forms of craft and traditional forms of making. There seems to be a, a quite a concerted kind of turn away from the digital is what I see in in art and exhibitions right now and and very little interest in engaging with the kind of strange experience of being alive now in the terms of like being extremely online form of being alive now or the mass hysteria of internet culture these days particularly internet culture the last few years that that doesn't really appear much in art and it doesn't get engaged with much so so it seems to me there's a turn away from like digital online forms, but there's also also a feeling of like turning our back on the present or much of the present and not just diving into old forms, but really diving into old artists, dead artists, forgotten artists, really going back in time, both in terms of who's being pushed and what kind of media and approaches are being pushed this is very apparent as something I've written a little bit about recently, but it's very apparent in the, the MoMA PS1 quincennial and particularly in the new museum triennial, both of which are up now. But it's also been apparent in fairs. And if you look at uh, most biennials, major biennials, since, say, the last documenta, like with the exception of uh, Venice of two, three years ago, the kind of post-internet Venice, with, with the exception of that, biennials are dominated by this kind of archaeological approach. Hmm. Hmm. Going back in time, going back to craft, going back to indigenous artists, but also like more kind of old ways of making, traditional ways of making. Hmm. Hmm. I think there are two competing forces. Uh, one of them would be institutional interests that provoke certain trends, but then there's another side of it that are market interests. And one of, maybe this is helpful context, but maybe maybe it's not. We'll just see where it goes. Say after the bubble burst of like the first era of the, the scene, say 2012 to 2014, and then and definitely over by 2015, um, there's a massive speculative bubble and assets shot up to like tenfold what they were before. In the crash of that, there was a return to something more or less like a gold standard. And you saw all of these young galleries then later discover artists who had either died or stopped making work. And they were uh, basically going through storage units to find something that, you know, there's only 20 of these because they were made between 72 and 74. And we can't print and reproduce them like fungible paintings. And you think it's an addition of 10, but it's actually an addition of 50. And the, the value of these assets is very unstable. So one of the ways of the market uh, uh, correcting itself of producing too many speculative assets was to create this more stable thing that there's only X number of pieces from this artist of that period. It was a more safe investment. But my, my sense was that that was really at the middle of the market. It wasn't a massive institutional trend. So I wonder if these are actually two different things that are coincidentally aligning, but maybe not, maybe not attached. I'm not sure if that logic 
really uh, validates in like the blue chip context because they mint the assets based on the reputation of the institution, not not based on market dynamics at at this point. Mm-hmm. You're talking and you're talking about biennials and, and Venice, so this is beyond the scale of a Lower East Side gallery and. No, but it's something I saw, it's something I maybe first saw happening. It was often at big galleries, big blue chips. I'm thinking of Dan Vo now, like big biennial, handsome sculpture that's expensive and has uh, complicated materials and there's a story attached to it. Is that a, maybe to give a, an example of what you're describing? He could fit into it. Uh, oh, do you mean what kind of art am I talking about? Yeah, yeah. What's a biennial example of something that fits this description? There was a big, um, there was Documenta five years ago, biggest exhibition in the world. And we have the, the new one opening this June. But so Documenta opened at uh, Castle, and before that it opened in Athens. The first room of the biennial, or the first room of the main venue was full of these, uh, not, even, not even really art, but kind of artifacts by Bo Dick. He was an indigenous artist from Canada, from the, I don't know the correct pronunciation, but it's Kwaka Kwaka tribe, Canadian indigenous tribe. Weirdly also, uh, their works collected by Jordan Peterson. Fascinating. I have seen some of his collections of uh, artifacts. Yeah, yeah. He, he owns a lot of it. <laughs> um, he owns a lot of that in the socialist uh, realism. But, but anyway, it, this was kind of the lead in work and it's an old indigenous artist making these like ceremonial masks, things that are somewhere between artworks and religious objects. And it celebrates an older generation, forgotten generation. It celebrates indigenous peoples and it celebrates very like handmade craft aesthetic. And then throughout, throughout the exhibition, there were all sorts of just lots of old stuff. There was a lot of like forgotten Eastern European realism, maybe like 70s Albanian realism, like wow. very, very odd stuff. But but just constant excavation of forgotten artists or artists that never really had their moment, certainly outside of their home country. And also like people working now, but really working in more crafty forms. You have filmmaking, but a lot of like painting, sculpture, handmade. And this is a, a huge, huge exhibition, but it was just very noticeable that there was no digital work whatsoever. I see. I see. Maybe with very few exceptions. I think like forensic architecture were in that show and a few other people. But but it's really like it's really kind of explicitly rejecting rejecting that side of things. One is tempted to imagine that, well, these timelines for the exhibitions are so long, so it's, it's hard to say if these are definitely attached, but uh, let's say, broadly speaking, that cyberspace has not really worked out for the donor class or for elites in general, because what it seems to have uncorked rather than, you know, a new commons or uh, uh, increased democracy, but it's instead released like reactionary authoritarian populism across most of the developed world. One is tempted to say that the uh, retreat from digital work is maybe a rejection of the cyberspace that we currently have and maybe pretending that it doesn't exist yeah. if it is not included in the exhibitions that are supposed to represent our global society. 
let me just tag this so we don't lose track of the topic, but there was something we mentioned before about transgression and, and taboos. We were, we grew up in a, a similar period. And I think there's a, if you, if you were a kid during the nineties, there was a type of counterculturalism that understood itself as being left wing, but it didn't necessarily have like real political commitments. It was just anti authority, anti everything, anti uh, whatever. It was this kind of residual nineties punk and uh, slacker unenthusiasm and a, a bit of like a nineties nihilism that now seems like just incredibly privileged. <laughs> and, uh, uh, um, but, um, I wonder if there was something like a pole shift that happened that people whose sense of, for, for what a political commitment meant to them was being countercultural. Once hegemony shifted to say, for example, progressives in Hollywood, progressives in the media, democratic hegemony amongst coastal elites and, and whatever else, all of a sudden, the counterculture seemed to be this transgressive, reactionary, meme shitposting thing. And so that created a hairpin turn in some people's self-conception and, and political commitments and all of a sudden revealed things as being ideological that were not before. I don't know. I wonder if the art world is kind of going through a similar, a similar thing at the moment where they are realizing that they did have ideological commitments and they're just making a, a, a different turn. Whereas previously art, um, say for example, of like one of the things you cite in the essay or the article, excuse me, is uh, uh, Mapplethorpe's photographs. Now Mapplethorpe seems um, status quo rather than transgressive. And I wonder if there's a professional managerial elite sense of how society should be constructed that the art world has had to give reckoning and is now admitting to itself that it is in alignment, more or less. There is a feeling of wanting to uphold standards, wanting to maintain common decency. And I think that's a big change. Mapplethorpe was photographing lots of explicit uh gay sex for the that's kind of what he's famous for and and often interracial like he had a real fascination with black men i think it's fair to say so there's there are lots of like big erect black penises erect white penises like very explicit photos and that was very uh shocking for a lot of people the time it was published you're right those those taboos don't really those taboos don't exist so more uh necessarily and it's possible that there's very few taboos that exist anymore um this is this is certainly something that's been suggested to me something i've heard it's uh and that's a kind of talking point that can come from all over the political spectrum because there's this idea that we live in this incredibly degenerate society and it's permissiveness for everything yeah everything is go everything is celebrated like you know sex work and everything celebrated and this is a sign that we're in some sodom and gomorrah like moment there's also a feeling that artists uh, that you need some kind of taboo to fight against in some sense or something to be breaking and that if you don't have that it's hard to make such bold statements or to make art with such power taboo can be used in 
different senses there, but someone who was replied to one of my, something I posted was framing it in terms of like taboo specifically in a kind of Freudian sense, uh, which taboos that usually have to do with like non-coercive, coercive sexuality. I think it's, I think this kind of thing maybe uh, Marcuse has written about, Herbert Marcuse, I think is like a, a key reference for that sort of thinking, but I haven't, I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable about Freud or Marcuse. Um, yeah, Maple thought it, it, that kind of thing doesn't have the impact now than it used to in the past. But um, something that I mentioned in my essay, and this is something I got from my editor for this piece, Alex Scrimgore, who's really helpful. Like he pointed out to me that the whole idea of provocation itself became very naff. Maplethorpe is operating at a time when it felt powerful and when it was an interesting thing to be doing. But since then, it's kind of been bled of any excitement or meaning. And art certainly played a part of that in that, specifically the YBAs in Britain who were kind of blowing up in the 90s and maybe peaking very early noughties. They really played with making shocking art, like purposefully shocking art to try to bait the tabloid newspapers like say the sun or the star and to try to provoke middle england uh, they really like they really rode the kind of waves of the media back then in a similar way to how trolls ride the waves of like how social media works today so there's a generation of artists who came after maplethorpe and who maybe like devalued provocation of its power so to, to try to make like like the very term edgelord now is a kind of it's an insult it's a cringy turn it's an it's an embarrassing approach to take and that's not just because of morality or it's to do with the whole idea of provocation being somehow drained hmm. really something i've always thought is or I've, something i've certainly thought is that at least for people like me of of my generation really the most shocking turn art could have taken is the turn it took, which was to become like very moralistic, very yes. didactic, and to start calling for the destruction or the removal of artworks or to start like openly celebrating censorship. That's very shocking for me. And not just because it goes against what I believe in, but just because it goes against the whole story and meaning of modern art that I was taught in college and in high school and I would read in my passion books about Edouard Manet or it, it's just um, it goes against the whole story I was told of what modern art and then contemporary art is supposed to do and represent. Is there a way of looking at this that perhaps the the culture front of the art world transgressing, breaking taboos and, and so forth, maybe it was so successful that it actually won that battle? And now in its victory lap, it doesn't know what to do with itself. Yeah, a victim, a victim of its own success. Yeah, but at, at the same time, we're in this situation where there's a sense of this finality to having such a heightened moralism and such, such intense, unquestionable moral principles that seems to be a type of end of history type thinking that you've resolved the contradictions, you know how to uh, uh, cure society's ills and... And that thesis seems to be coming apart because there is a, 
a political fragmentation that's happening as well. Yeah, and so these contributing factors, questioning of morality, liberal morality and conservative transgression is an insane thing, an insane uh, summary of our current situation, but it seems fairly accurate. Uh, and there's a total, as you're saying, overturning of the, the art and the values that we were taught to celebrate and to challenge in our, our youth. So I also think, I think the idea of uh, like liberal morality in art and art that serves a, a moral purpose is already been undermined a lot from within because what you have now is a lot of art that kind of gestures at these concerns but really has no politics to it whatsoever so i'll go to exhibitions i mentioned the new museum triennial there's a real celebration and explicit celebration of diversity in that show like having us diverse backgrounds of artists as possible but beyond that there's nothing like there's no actual none of these diverse artists are saying or encouraged to say like any kind of radical political statement or really any political statement whatsoever you go to the show it's one of the most it's one of the most apolitical shows you could encounter like it is just it's just like mostly kind of almost like art for art's sake, like formalism, craft objects. But in the text, maybe in the wall text, there's some small gesture towards an, an idea of equity or a better society. Um, similar thing, it's been very visible among galleries, like going right up to the biggest galleries is the like kind of turning black bodies back into a commodity, like the the mania for selling black figurative paintings and and that is like a big market trend um these more radical politics within the art world or more confrontational forms of morality are are, are, have quickly been absorbed into like more bland forms sellable forms or kind of calming relaxing institutional art therapeutic art that's that, that's what that's what I see happening. Like it, it, it's kind of already become this very it's 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 been kind of corrupted. It's been like sapped of its power, as happens. You know, we may well come to miss those fiery days of 2019, 2018, miss that fear and paranoia, because now everything's just very level. You know very calm, Mm -hmm. low stakes, as you said earlier. There's a sense that the art world is both at the forefront, at the leading edge of culture, but also completely separate from it. That there are things that happen in the art world that are basically outside of the parameters of society and have no effect, interface with nothing else, are totally self-contained. And then there's issues where we talk about... um, removing works from an exhibition or destroying them. And uh, it turns into a panel discussion on the view or something like that. So at different moments, uh, the art world is seemingly at the forefront, but also uh, unattached and unimportant. So I wonder if your sense of this is that, are we trending for a closer, for more information being passed from the sphere of the art world to culture in general? Or are we trending away where art becomes totally divergent from mass culture and has even less influence? Does the art world become more or less relevant? 
does the artwork become more or less relevant to culture? I think it becomes less relevant, a lot less relevant relative to how it was. I really felt that art was the dominant cultural form of the 2010s. That's my feeling, early 2010s. Uh, it, it really like put itself in I would, I would agree with that, yeah. And it was, yeah. you know, suddenly you have like the biggest, some of the biggest celebrities in the world or pop stars, rappers, like talking about art, collecting yeah. art, turning up at fairs, making art. You have like uh, the former president's making art, the president's son making art. Everyone's making art suddenly. Everyone's buying, everyone's interested in that. And and for a long time, it, it felt like it was kind of leading things. It always had new ideas. It was always somewhere you could look. Uh, I, don't, I don't see it having those new ideas anymore. So I already don't, don't see it having the impact, the kind of sway over culture that it did even like five years ago. And I don't think any of this, I'm, I'm not saying this is because it's taken a moral turn or anything. I, I think it just reached a sort of exhaustion point. Hmm. And a lot of, there are plenty of people here in New York, younger people, particularly people who will just say like, I don't care about art. You know, I don't, Yeah, I yeah. know that that's a kind of, maybe that's an affectation in itself, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, I certainly grew up in a moment where as I was coming out of college, I started to see some of my artist friends blow up. And that was the, that was the thing to be in. That was the kind of, of like my kind of late millennial generation, the, the artist, at least for where I'm from, that, that, was, that was the dream. That was the figure. That was the kind of rock star figure equivalent or the... Totally, totally. Uh, now, now, now that's gone. But, but then I think... You know, and then in terms of like, so so I don't think it's influential leading culture, but but in terms of its like role in culture, I also think art is really positioning itself or is positioned at the heart of society. You know, it's kind of gone from that idea of the outcast, the, the person outside of the fringes of society to a lot of things we're discussing today, like the donor class or the upholding of moral decency or the art is something that rejects or fights against populism. Like it, there's really a, a repositioning of so much of art, art as commodity as well, a safe commodity, both in its institutional and market forms. It's really right at the heart of society. You'll see so many like, uh, you know, if you go to Chelsea, you see, all, see a lot of, um, it's kind of a career, right? Maybe you're from like a good family and you go, work on the front desk of a gallery in Chelsea and it's just like it's a it's a step in a step in life yeah yeah it's um it's uh the professional art world in the U.S. has found a way of ingraining itself into class structure uh, had an effect of quelling dissenting voices and reducing the total amount of perspectives that uh, are voiced in some of those institutions and exhibitions and and what have you and yeah it's um it's a funny moment. We're scale jumping a lot between these fields because I think part of the question is that we have to determine like what is the proper frame to discuss this through? Are these issues of uh, legacy institutions that can't adapt or are they donor influences or is it a trend cycle? And um, I'd always thought of myself as someone who was 
interested in the transgressive potentials of art and challenging taboos, but also as a very moral person. And in the last few years, I find myself on <laughs> the other side of these of, of these issues. And I guess mostly because I think they're being deployed in a very disingenuous fashion, which is mostly to the detriment of people who are trying to participate in art and, and really care about carrying on those values and like furthering the project of the enlightenment and progress in, in general. It's an odd uh, moment and gives us cause to reevaluate a lot of these things. Yeah, I can I can attempt some synergy. Yeah. I can try to tie some threads. We've ha- we've opened up a lot of loose threads, and yeah, yeah, tie us together. I, I really I really agree with what you like. I also believe in uh, in the power of art. Still, art in the more traditional meaning, art that's something that can give meaning to our lives, and. Uh, the enlightenment project you know that th- these things should not should not all be abandoned but you asked me earlier you asked me if i thought there were different donor structures between us and europe and that's why these uh, moral issues i think had kind of come to the fore first in america and the united states i think the reason things happened like that is because the United States just still dominates global culture, or at least Western culture, and a lot of culture beyond that. And it's just that that culture now takes the form more of of politics, essentially, or discourse, perhaps we might more properly say. I think so many of these discussions about morality then connect to like sexual politics, race politics, all of this stuff is coming from America and it's then flooding out across the world. And that is, I would say that is the form that US culture takes now. So we talk about art's influence. Yeah, I don't think art will have the same influence on culture that it did five years ago. But I think these discussions happening within art do have that influence, have a bigger influence because they've really changed the world and are, are sweeping around the world. Discussions that begin on maybe college campuses in America, I don't know where they begin exactly, but like discussions that begin in states and small places are often incubated in the art world or in you know various academic spheres, various cultural spheres have, have gone on to become incredibly influential around the world. Then I think to some extent, like the discourse is the culture now. Like this kind of thing would be an example of it because you're We're doing um, it. You're, you're an artist, but you're yeah. doing it. You're broadcasting and you're building channel with other artists and writers and editors. And I, I just think there's a there's been a fundamental shift away from the old, I guess we'd call forms, maybe art, music literature, theater, like dance, all all these things are still happening. I still like all these things, but a lot of the action is really, is moving elsewhere. I think a lot of the culture is moving elsewhere. And that's where the really influential stuff is happening. And that's where a lot of the exciting stuff is happening. And yeah, some of it might be really appalling. Taboos have been broken there for sure, but there's all, there's stuff that really, uh, there's, dazzling stuff going on. Some opportunities are opening up. And I think after a few years of feeling like things were rigidly locked in place and change was really not possible, I am once again, I think, 
excited to do this stuff after after a few years of kind of stagnation and frustration and yeah it feels like things are moving in if not a desirable direction at least a direction it is moving in general so that creates other opportunities dean thank you so much for joining me today on the call uh this was super fun where can people find you on social media where can they read your work my handles are dean kissick one word i have a monthly column on spike art magazine called the downward spiral and hopefully, if, if I can get my stuff together this year, hopefully I'm going to finish a book, which will be about some of these topics. Wow. Okay. That's very exciting. I didn't know that. That's news to me. Excellent. Yeah. I highly recommend uh, reading Dean's work. Yeah. I'm very excited about this book. That'll be uh, sorely needed, I think. Yeah. Dean, thank you so much for joining me and uh, more again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Greetings, you Matrix One.